Dr. Ian Speller is the Director for the Centre of Military History and Strategic Studies at the National University of Ireland. He lectures in Naval History and Maritime Strategy, and he is a co-author of the Cambridge University Press book, Understanding Modern Warfare. I took the opportunity to talk to Dr. Speller about, among other things, the current naval relationship between the US and growing tensions with China. Dr. Ian Speller, thank you very much for talking to me. That's no problem. No problem at all. Just to start us off, can you give us a bit of an idea, a bit of a picture, as to the size of the US Navy fleet in comparison to other Navy fleets around the world? Well, the Americans are in an unusual position, I suppose, and have been for a long time insofar as if you, if you go beyond just counting vessels and think about capabilities, they're probably more capable than the rest of the world put together, really. They have um, a range and a scale of capability that nobody can even come close to matching. So any one of their carrier battle groups would probably be able to hold its own against most reasonable threats. And in that respect, they're a little similar to the British fleet of the late 19th century, um, insofar as there is nobody that bears any comparison to them. And Ian, what is the current U.S. policy uh, with regard to use and control of international waters? Well, U.S. policy is less a term, into, uh, phrase in terms of controlling international waters. Their policy for some time now has been driven towards what they would call protecting the global commons, View, viewing international waters as a vital enabler for U.S., but also for world prosperity. And they would see themselves have playing a key role in protecting the use of those commons, not just for, them, for themselves and for American shipping, but for everybody's shipping. And one of the things they've articulated, particularly in the last 10 years, is their role in coordinating the activities of others to try and draw in other navies to help them in that sort of wider policing role. So there is certainly elements of control in that, but I, I don't know that they would always necessarily express it in that way. And what happens when the U.S. Navy, uh, a fleet or a ship, meets another ship or a fleet from, say, China or Russia in international waters? Uh, I mean, do they, do they just wave at each other? So, this is one of the ways in which navies are, are different from armies, I suppose. Um, foreign armies um, rarely meet unless it's in a sort of highly formalized setting, whereas navies um, cross each other's paths on a, on a regularized basis. International waters are freely available for everybody to use within, you know, certain bounds in terms of, of you know, what you what you do when you're out, out there. And warships commonly, um, well, they don't pass too close by because that wouldn't be safe, but they commonly sort of pass in, in, in the same kind of area. And, um, yeah, they might um, do a friendly acknowledgement of each other's presence, but it's not a big deal for ships to be passing each other. And is that true of every country? I mean, are there some countries that just avoid each other? Well, again, I think warships in any country are going to be wary of getting too close just because there's a safety of navigation issue. And um, clearly, you're not going to want to run up too close to an American aircraft carrier because um, that, that's a dangerous thing to do, leaving aside any hostile response. But one of the things that, that is a feature of naval activity is the, the, the courtesy with which they deal with each other. They are used to meeting on a regular basis. Warships visit foreign ports all the time. And even potential adversaries are used to sort of meeting and getting on. American and Chinese uh, sailors um, have met, and American ships and Chinese ships have been in the same ports at the same time. The U.S. Um, Coast Guard have conducted exercises with Chinese vessels and things. So um, I don't think it's, it's necessarily a problem. And then with regards to China, uh, China is currently engaged in quite a massive military build-up and especially expanding their navy. Do you see this as a potential point of tension between the U.S. and China? It very much depends on 
well, what you see depends on where you stand. Many commentators from a Washington perspective look at the growing size of the Chinese Navy and see that as a threat. And much recent U.S. naval policy has been articulated in terms of how to deal with that. They call it the anti-access area denial threat that's been built up by Chinese in particular capabilities. Although U.S. policy statements are very careful never to use the word China, but we all know what they mean. Uh, but from a Chinese perspective, um, and they've articulated this quite, this quite clearly, that they consistently state that they're only interested in the harmonious use of the seas, they have no aggressive intent, and that really all they're doing is um, what any growing country would do, which is to build up its own defensive capability. The truth, of course, lies somewhere between the two, but it's perceptions, really, um, that, that count here. Yes, there, there does seem to be a lot of comment from Washington and from the international press about this idea of China denying the U.S. access to the South China Seas. Well, American policy for decades has been built on the ability to use the seas almost freely. That there, there might be some dangers when you got there in the littoral region, that there were threats that had to be catered for, but that overall the use of the, of the global commons would be relatively uncontested, certainly since the end of the Soviet Union. And now that's changing, and the Americans are adjusting to an environment where future potential adversaries will have a range of capabilities that can challenge them in ways that hasn't previously been the case. But in truth, that's just a return to the, the norm. The period of American dominance was exceptional rather than normal. And the Americans are going back to the situation that most navies have usually faced, which is they may have to fight in a war, they may have to fight to use the sea. Do you think the US are accepting this change in situation? Well, no great power accepts a peer rival gladly. And one of the interesting things would be how they, they learn to adjust to this situation. It is natural that the Chinese, who have growing economic and political power, will want to assert that in some way or another not least because they see themselves as hemmed in by a range of states that are seeking to contain them. And they believe that their rights and privileges at sea, including access to islands and disputed islands and things, are being cut off by other powers. So, it, of course, the Chinese are going to grow and express themselves and develop their naval capabilities. The interesting thing will be the degree to which the United States can adjust to that relative declining power. And what do you see as China's goal in increasing their naval strength? Well, again, it's hard to know. I mean, they portray it um, in distinctly defensive terms. And it is fair to point out that the Chinese have suffered um, grossly at the hands of foreign intervention over the centuries, and that intervention has come from the seas. It is natural that they would want to build up a defensive capability. However, if you if you take the perspective of most of Chinese, China's neighbours, they don't tend to see it as defensive, and they have a lot of experience of fairly aggressive posturing by um, Chinese fishermen as well as um naval vessels and coast guard vessels so um it is uh, from this distance it's extremely difficult to know where it to know where the chinese are going I, clearly there's a defensive motivation the extent to which there's also an offensive it's hard to know have there been any actual confrontations between china and the u.s in recent years uh, well there's i mean obviously there's constant rhetoric one of the incidents that stands in my mind and it's a few years ago now but it, it's i think representative of the way the u.s will need to adjust is a number of years ago, an American aircraft was conducting surveillance operations on the edge of Chinese territorial airspace. And the Chinese sent up a fighter aircraft, and um, there was a confrontation, and the aircraft ended up clipping the American plane, and they both crashed. And the Chinese impounded the American plane and arrested the crew. They later released the crew, and there was a huge diplomatic incident over the affair. And the American perspective was they were doing nothing wrong. They were in international airspace, and that's perfectly legal and legitimate. And the Chinese claimed that they were in Chinese airspace, 
um, that they were conducting spying missions. And the reason I find this interesting is um, the Americans hadn't adjusted to the concept of China as a peer rival at that stage, and that you just can't fly spy planes that close to uh, a, a peer rival's coast without expecting them to do something. If Chinese planes flew up and down the American coast on a regular basis, there would be some sort of a response. And it's, it's that kind of adjustment. It's getting used to a different power relationship that's interesting and, and will bear a lot of watching. And what, what other countries are emerging as a possible contender to U.S. dominance of the sea? For example, India? Well, India's a growing naval um, power, and the Indians have aspirations to be the dominant force within the, the Indian Ocean littoral. But that's focused, well, immediately on Pakistan, with whom they have a conflictual relationship. But it's also, I think, um, focused on China. And India, I don't believe, sees the United States as a potential future rival, but is clearly worried about Chinese encroachments into the Indian Ocean. So in the long term, India probably stands more likely as a partner to the United States than it does to a potential rival. But of course, India is just one of a number of states, I mean, Brazil might be a good example as well, that are growing in terms of economic power, and inevitably, therefore, that increases their military potential. So the period where the United States was the lone superpower, well, it's still the lone superpower, but for how much longer it will stand alone is unclear. There are other countries um, gaining capabilities that may never be on the same scale, but that will undermine the Americans' relative advantage. And at the same time, it goes beyond that. There are smaller countries, um, Iran would be a perfect example, that will never be able to challenge American sea control on the global commons, but that can challenge control in confined spaces like the Strait of Hormuz. And they are gaining access to sophisticated weaponry, and they are learning to use existing old-style weaponry more effectively, and that will pose a serious challenge to the Americans should they want to engage countries like Iran. What kind of, uh, what kind of threat uh, does um, unconventional weapons, like, for example, from smaller countries, pose to large naval fleets? Well, it very much depends what you're trying to do with that fleet. If you keep it far offshore, then you can limit many of the threats that are posed because it takes quite a sophisticated capability to track and target a fleet that's out on, on the open ocean. Once you start closing into the literal, there are lots of things a, a, smaller, a smaller state can do. Even old-fashioned things like sea mines can pose a huge threat in confined waters. Small diesel-electric submarines can be quiet, very, very effective. They're not too expensive to operate. The most obvious thing, of course, is anti-ship missiles that have proliferated so widely at the moment, even sub-state groups have them. Hezbollah hit an Israeli corvette with a Chinese uh, anti-ship missile um, in the conflict in 2006. I think the Americans are very aware that things that used to once only belong to reasonably powerful states are now spreading down to sub-state groups and in certain groups, and that that will pose a threat to access. In terms of naval strategy, how has recent experience, for example in the Iraq war where they had to change their strategy to cope with the insurgency, how has this affected current naval strategy? Well, from the perspective of the Americans, the naval policy has been driven by the anti-access threat at the moment, and they've developed the new concept of air-sea battle precisely to deal with that. But your point about Iraq and Afghanistan is an important one. There's a growing recognition that putting troops ashore to engage in long-term intractable insurgencies might not actually be the best way of going about things, and that countries ought to seek um, more limited ways of exerting power with a lower level of risk. And actually, navies may provide one of those things because a maritime force doesn't have the same footprint ashore. It is less vulnerable to insurgent activity. It cannot do the same range of things that a large land-based force can do. 
but it might be able to do enough to suit the needs of national policy without engendering the same levels of risk. And finally, just going back to China, uh, could you just tell us quickly what what stage is China at in developing uh, their naval forces? Uh, they're at a relatively early stage. There was a, a lot of show uh, recently about the fact that the Chinese have launched their first aircraft carrier. They commissioned it, or they're in the process of commissioning it. Um, it's, it's at an early step, an experimental step. This is no way comparable to an American aircraft carrier. It's um, just a conversion of something they got from the Russians. It is not at the same level of development. They only have the one at this stage any in any case, and it isn't supported by anything like the, the full range of equipment and capabilities that the American systems are, are supported by. So they are at an early stage. But what is interesting is the speed at which they, they can begin to catch up. So once they were dependent on buying in their technology from overseas, now there's a greater emphasis on indigenous production. And it's worth bearing in mind that in the late 19th century, the Japanese went from being a country with almost no navy, and then the next step was a country with a powerful navy that they'd essentially purchased larger than the British because most of their ships were built in the UK. And then within just a few short decades, they were building their own ships that were every bit as capable as those of their opponents. So things can move quite quickly within literally just one generation. You can go from limited capability to something quite serious. Dr. Ian Speller, thank you very much for talking to me today. No problem. Dr. Speller is one of the co-authors of the book Understanding Modern Warfare for Cambridge University Press.